Uh, thanks for the warm welcome and thanks for the, the opportunity to come and share with you guys. So my name's Josh Newbigin. I, I grew up in country Victoria, which is a couple of no- hours north of you guys. But I'm presently living down in Torquay and I'm on the parcel team for Geelong. And um, yeah, my, my passion is really empowering other people to reach their full potential. And that's so that then collectively we can work to make a difference. And today I'm going to be talking a little bit about why we exist as a church, why the Adventist church exists. And so, yeah, I, I hope that it um, prompts some thought and some reflection and that um, you guys get something out of it that you can apply here in Melbourne. Um, I'm just going to say another prayer and then we'll get stuck into it. Father God, I just want to thank you for being present with us here and yeah, the opportunity to, to fellowship together. Thank you for the sunshine and, and for your word, Lord, and, and uh, just allow us to, to hear a message from you this afternoon. Amen. Now... One of the important things we need to ask ourselves, as I was saying, is why we exist. Because I believe what we do and how we do it should flow from that. Now, some of you might have heard of a startup company in the 70s that was based in a garage. Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. Later on, became Apple Computers. You guys have heard of this. Now, these guys were not setting out to make a, a multi-billion dollar company. They were actually looking to... St- to challenge the status quo. I can see you're adjusting the camera there. I'm going to keep you on your toes today. I I like to wander and pace. But I'm I'm a little bit leashed here, so we'll see how far we can get. So Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, their their goal was not to create a multi-million dollar business. Their their goal was to empower the average Joe to stick it to the man. Essentially, they were protesters. And the way that they did that was make computers. Because they thought that if, if we could give average citizens' computers, then they had the power to challenge big corporations. And so, because they were so clear in why they existed, it gave them the flexibility to then adopt how they challenged the status quo. We now, most of us are carrying in our pockets iPhones. What business did a computer company have with phones? It makes sense now because... These are little supercomputers, but if you ask that question back in the 70s, it made no sense at all. But because they had a clear why, it allowed them to be flexible in the way that they carried that out, so what they did and how they did it. So we need to establish why we exist as Adventists. There's this idea that you might have heard before, that he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. He who has a clear why to live for can bear almost any how. It's challenging to be a follower of Christ. It's challenging to pursue mission. But if we have that clear why we're doing it, you can persist through those challenges. So why do we we exist? Is it it our theology? Is it to be plant-based vegetarians? Is it for big camp? Maybe to pay our tithes and offering? Is it to, to gather together on, on Sabbath afternoon, collectively. This, this is part of what we do, but I would argue it's not actually why we exist. But before we get to clarify the why, we need to look back in history, because Adventism hasn't come from a vacuum. We've emerged from history. Now, before we get to that, I just want to touch on the idea of story. Now, there's a, a cognitive scientist who says that Story, or he calls it narrative imaging, which just a fancy way of saying story, is the fundamental idea 
of thought. So story is how we make sense of reality as humans. It's the way we're designed. And, and when you reflect, when you reflect on how we operate as humans, we love stories. Just look at Hollywood. Billion, multi-billion dollar industry that's just telling stories and we're captivated by it. And even if you're just sitting around a campfire with some friends, and I don't know if you've ever been with someone who is an engaging storyteller, and you can be on the edge of your seats with someone just speaking words. And we've been doing this through the ages as humans. We pass on our identity and our knowledge through story. Story is how we make sense of reality. Stories, oh no. Clean up in aisle three. Lucky it's just water. It's, it's, it's just running right on my feet for those of you who are playing at home. Oh, no. There's some chords here. This is exactly how I imagined today going. Anyway, so while we're cleaning that up, no one go near those chords. I'm glad this is online so we can watch it later. <clears throat> All right. <laughs> Thanks, Lorraine. All right, so story is important for five reasons. We'll get back on track here. Story engages our, our intellect and our heart at the same time. Because if you just share... You guys are amazing. If, if, if we just share uh, data, for example, we start throwing out the stats of how many people are starving. Does that impact your heart? What if we showed you a picture of a child who's malnourished and on death's door? What does that do for you? That has an impact, right? It's the power of story. Um... So story can move not only our mind, but also our hearts. Story also invokes participation, where we become part of the story. It validates the individual's ability to make a difference. And then story also has the power to tell us something that we know, but we're evading. So, for example... Thanks, Lorraine. I'll, I'll try to be more careful. <laughs> um, for example, the story of King David, where he's slept with Bathsheba sent Uriah off to be murdered on the front lines and then has just continued on with life like he's done nothing wrong. Maybe you guys have heard of this story. And then Nathan the prophet comes before him and tells him a story. And he says, there was a man, a rich man, and he took from a poor man, took his, his best sheep and sacrificed it. And then David reacts with this, this righteous indignation and Nathan just quickly is like, you're the man, and then he walks out of the room. And David realises that he condemned himself. So story has this power to, to essentially cut through our, our self-justifying and get to our hearts. Story is powerful. It's how we navigate reality. It's also really easy to remember. So for example, I remember being in school and trying to remember the planets, the order of them. I just, I just couldn't get it right. But what happens if we put it into a story? Now I'm going to get you guys to do some imagining right now. So imagine you're at home, you're in your backyard and then next second you look up and there's this massive ball of mercury that falls from the sky, slams into the ground and just misses Venus Williams. She happens to be in your backyard as well. And then the earth explodes up from where the mercury is. Like, wow, that was pretty insane. Lucky I've got this Mars bar here in my pocket. I'm going to have a tasty little snack and just as you're going to bite it, 
this big fella named Jupiter just comes in, reaches over, like, yoink, I'm going to eat that. And Jupiter's wearing this shirt that has S-U-N on it, which stands for Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. In the 90s, he would have had a dog called Pluto. Pluto's no longer a planet, so he no longer has a dog. So when we think about this, you don't have to think about the order of the planets, you just think about the story. I wish someone taught me that in primary school. Because we naturally remember stories. You don't have to put in effort to remembering a story. It's a, a silly example, but it shows the power of story. And we, we can really capture that as, as a group of people. There's a statement that you might have heard. It says, we have nothing to fear for the future, except as we shall forget the way the Lord has led us and his teaching in our past history. Said that another way, we have nothing to fear except forgetting our story or forgetting how he's led in our story. So then the question I want to ask is, okay, so what's our story? Because Adventism hasn't occurred in a vacuum. We've emerged from, from history. We're a part of a story. If we're going to break a long story down into a short one, there's Adventism has emerged from Protestants, and Protestants were protesting the church and the corruption at the time, and so you get this group of Protestants. From the Protestants, there's two main groups. The Calvinists, started by John Calvin, and the Arminians, started by Jacobus Arminian. don't need to remember the name except that there's two groups, Calvinists, Arminians. And they had two schools of thought. And we have emerged from the Arminian school of thought. Now the question I want to ask is, how do we get our framework for understanding scripture? So how do we get our framework for understanding story? And following so far, are we tracking? We need to understand how our ideas develop because our beliefs are essentially stories. We have a, a story about how we understand reality. So what is the story of the Calvinists? What is the story of the Arminians? And how do we differ then as Adventists? Why do we exist? For example, if I had a white piece of paper here and then I gave you a set of rose-coloured glasses. You put your rose-coloured glasses on and you look at the white paper. What colour would the white paper be? It would be rose. Is the paper really rose-coloured? No. The glasses or the framework, we would say the presupposition gives you the interpretation that white paper is rose. Following that idea? So we have a, a presupposition, which is our glasses. We use that to interpret something, the paper, and then we get our theology, the theology of the rose-coloured paper. That's actually white. So, when we're reading God's Word, we've got to ask ourselves the question, what is our presupposition? What's the framework that we're using to interpret it to then get our theology? Are we tracking? So, the presupposition of, of the Calvinists was that God is separate from time and from that you get the interpretation that because God is separate from time he set everything up that God knows everything he's sovereign so we're going to go presupposition God is separate from time because he's separate from time he knows everything because he's already dictated it so determinism the theology then let's say if we're talking about salvation God saves those he wants to save and destroys those he wants to destroy. Are you seeing the logic, how that flows? Now, I'm really glad this is not an accurate 
representation of what scripture is. But if you start with the presumption of God being separate from us in time, you interpret that as, well, if he's separate from time, he can only know what's going to happen if he determined it. And if he determines everything, we don't have free will. Those who are saved just because God's chosen them. If you're in the group, yay for you, everyone else, better luck next time. So the Arminians responded against this because it contradicted the idea of God being love. We read that in the New Testament. Like they, they couldn't reconcile the ideas. So they're responding to this predeterministic concept. So they, they shifted their framework or their presupposition. They said, the foundation is that God is love. And if God is love, they interpreted that free will exists. And if free will exists, then salvation is available for everyone, but it's a choice. Seeing how that, that logic follows. So they shifted their, their foundational idea and said that God is love. He's relational. Therefore, for love to exist, we have to have a choice because you can't force love. Salvation's available for all, but not everyone will choose it. Now, because of this, it necessitated almost a middle story. So there's the big story, which is how God operates separate from creation. The small story is how God interacts with his creation. The middle story is how do you explain evil, like pain and suffering in a world? The, the Calvinists didn't need that because you just go, well, God determined it. That's just the way it is. But through this lens that God is love and we've got choice, how do you reconcile God being love and then pain and suffering? I don't know if you guys have ever wrestled with that. That's really difficult, right? And so they're trying to make sense of this. And so then they... They throw in this middle story, which was individuals like John Wesley, and we would call it the great controversy, that there's a conflict between good and evil that we happen to be in the midst of. And that gave them some insights to try and understand how God can be love, yet there can be pain and suffering in the world, and we can have choice. Now, where Arminianism failed is that it failed to really address the presupposition that God is timeless. God is separate from time. They focused on the relational aspect that God is love. And because they never really addressed that, though they reconciled that salvation is a choice, it wasn't a, a lens or a framework to navigate the whole Bible. And, and what I mean by that, they ended up with some inconsistencies because on the one hand that they would say, God is love and you have choice. On the other hand, if you don't respond to him, he's going to burn you forever and ever in hell. How do you reconcile those two pictures? And so because of this, this shallow understanding, a lot of people rejected it because it couldn't be used to, to interpret everything in Scripture. So it wasn't completely wrong. I would just say it was unfinished. Then we get to the discovery of, of sanctuary. God says... In Psalms, or David says rather, your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. He also said in Exodus 25, 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell with them. Then Jesus comes, Matthew says that his name would be Emmanuel, God with us. John 1, 14, Jesus came, the flesh, sorry, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Another translation might actually say he tabernacled. So Jesus, the sanctuary, became flesh and dwelt with us. It reveals to us, through this lens, God's desire to be with his people throughout history. 
So then we use this framework to start interpreting this. If we have a framework, presupposition that God desires to be with his people, it's the sanctuary lens. We can interpret that, that God is relational, he loves his people. Then when we get to theology, we can start having this insight to understand all these different ideas, like how does God deal with the destruction of those who reject his love? What does God do when we die? What about the judgment? We can start understanding all these ideas clearly and go deeper into theology because we've got the framework or tool to do that. Are you guys tracking? So what we've got here is is a tool that allows us to complete the work that was started by Arminians. Just to tie that together again, God's desire has always to be with his people. But sin severs us, it cuts us off. And so he has to navigate that reality and find a way to be with his people without destroying them because they're now attached to this virus called sin. And so he gives them a blueprint, the sanctuary. He says, let them make me a sanctuary that I can dwell among them. Right in the midst, in the sanctuary, the tabernacle in the Old Testament, right in the middle of camp. A clear symbol, God is with his people and he's going to journey with them. At night, there's a light above them. During the day, there's a cloud. God never left his people. And that's a symbol of how he has journeyed with them through time. Then Jesus comes, Emmanuel, God with us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The, the, The God of scripture is a God who's dwelling with his people. And so... If we've got that framework, a presupposition that God is relational, we can interpret that through this lens of God being love. We navigate all these difficult questions that we find in Scripture. So then how does this tie into our our identity as Adventists? I guess the question would be to ask. The, the, The trap that we face is we've got all these ideas, like this theology that we focus on. So imagine you walk in this room today and up the front here we've got, we'll use this table as an example. We've got this table here and when you walk in you see I've got a bunch of microscopes stacked on the table, 28 of them. And each one of those microscopes is, is going to give you different insight into the table. The table is symbolic of God. The microscopes are our our theology or our fundamental ideas about who God is. What happens if we just focus on the microscopes though? We miss the table. And so the point of the microscopes is not to get caught up on them but to look through them to Christ. Is that making sense? So we've got these theological ideas that just give us insight into who Jesus is. There's that verse in in John chapter 5 where Jesus is having this discussion with the Pharisees who spent their whole life studying the Word. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. And he says to them, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. We can get so caught up in ideas in the microscopes that we miss what they're actually pointing to. Jesus is not only the centre of Scripture, he is Scripture in its fullness, the sanctuary made flesh. And so when we've got this, this idea in mind, it gives us the ability to communicate the most attractive, most 
compelling story of God's love the world has ever heard. I'm going to say that again. Because I think this is why we exist. As, as Adventists, as a church, God has raised us up to communicate a picture of who God is that is so compelling, is so clear, that it, it is the most beautiful picture that the world has ever heard. And it's not because it's anything to do with us. It's because we've been given this framework to be able to understand his word. And the point of it is that it's to give us that clearer picture of who he is and what he's done. It's his story. So our story just becomes a continuation of that, communicating his. So my challenge then would be to us, don't miss Jesus. Don't let him pass by. But use our insights to understand him more clearly. There's a verse in John chapter 13, 35. We'll go from 34 though. It says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love the world as I have loved you. It's interesting that Jesus says this is a new commandment, right? Because we're told to love our neighbours as ourselves. But I think what Jesus is picking up on here is that we're not very good at even loving ourselves. And so he's saying, new commandment, love others as I have loved you. That's how you've got to replicate it. And by this, verse 35, all will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Because communicating the most compelling picture of God the world has ever heard goes beyond words. We communicate in our actions. We communicate in who we are as people. And I think we, we have a tendency to get so full of ourselves that we're just in a room talking about ourselves to ourselves until that we think there's actually something significant about ourselves. It's not about us, it's about him and what he's done, what he is doing, what he's going to do. And, and when we're on board with that, when we've got that clear idea, we're empowered to love in such a way that others would look at us and see God more clearly. This is why we exist, to communicate the most compelling picture of God the world has ever heard. And maybe you're wondering, okay, that's all well and good, but how come I've experienced churches, Adventist churches, where they were cold, lifeless, legalistic, dead? If, if we've got such a compelling story, why are we experiencing legalistic, unloving churches? That's a valid question. And I think... It comes when we've shifted from keeping the main thing the main thing. It's become... We've shifted our focus away from Christ and, and to ourselves. But the whole point of the framework, the sanctuary, was to uplift Christ. Paul says, For I determined to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's where his focus was. And I don't know if you've experienced it, but I know in my walk, if my focus shifts from Christ and maybe to myself, my behaviour, or the behaviour of others, it's to my own detriment. And there's communities where the focus has shifted away from who God is and what he's doing, what he's going to do, to selves. And then someone will walk in and experience that and go, well, this is not a place I necessarily want to be. This is not a place where the love of Christ is being lived out. There's a statement from Sean Brace, an author and pastor in the States, and he said, the path to healing and wholeness must go through the garden of non-condemning love. I will, I will. The path to healing and wholeness 
has to go through the garden of non-condemning love. Let that sink, sink in for a little bit. Each and every one of us requires healing and wholeness. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us in our fallen state prior to conversion are broken and need transformation. And the way to experience transformation is through the garden of non-condemning love. John 3.17 says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might have life. John 3.16 and 17 should always be quoted together. God did not send Jesus to condemn us. Romans 8.1 says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you see this in Jesus' interactions with so many people. For example, the woman at the well. A, a lady who's living a life that many people would roll their eyes at. And she's an outcast in society. And Jesus intentionally waits for her at the well. She's coming at a time of day when it makes no sense to get water when you're in the desert. She's avoiding people. She's isolated. She's hurting. And then Jesus starts having this conversation with her. But what we see in this interaction is Jesus showed her non-condemning love. He accepted her where she was and then after this interaction, she runs into town and says, come and see the man who told me everything I've ever done. She experienced non-contemning love and that led to healing and wholeness. The woman caught in idolatry in, in John 8, Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. We're, we're not going to transform ourselves or our communities with a pointed finger. It happens by loving like Jesus loved. And when we've encountered who Christ is and we've experienced the power of the gospel that we are no longer slaves to sin but we can be slaves to righteousness. Paul says, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's an empowered life where we can then love like God is calling us to love. It's not something we can do in our own effort. And it's, it's, it's interesting that the tendency of legalism is to focus on self and things I shouldn't do. The emphasis of Jesus is on the things that you should be doing. That's something you can't manufacture yourself. You can white-knuckle it and avoid all the don'ts. You can't manifest genuine love for others without Christ in your heart. That requires a death to self. But the beauty of the gospel is it's not something that we have to try and manufacture within ourselves. It's an accomplished fact. We just had Easter. Not only did Jesus go to the cross for you and die, but he was raised again. The tomb is empty. Therefore, we can proclaim with boldness, as Paul does, we are no longer slaves to sin, no longer slaves to selfishness, no longer slaves to a way of living that's inconsistent with our design, but we are now empowered to live according to who we're called to be, children of God. And the church is a community of people that is called out of the world's way of thinking into God's way of thinking, believing and behaving and doing it in community together and loving other people in that way so they can be liberated from the lies that are keeping them captive. Are you seeing how this flows on? We are called to communicate the most compelling picture of God the world has ever seen. And when this picture was communicated in the first century, it was revolutionary. We sit here as evidence of that. When this, communi- when this picture was communicated in the 1800s, it was revolutionary. And something shifted in our history, and I think our focus shifted away from Christ and onto ourselves. 
But what an opportunity, though, when we realise the story that God's calling us to be a part of. The privilege to share with others his story. I don't know about you guys, but have you ever encountered a product before where you were just so excited about it you wanted to share it with others? Yeah? It's one of those things like you can't contain this. This is going to make life better for those I care about, so I'm going to share it with them. And then that joy is multiplied when they're enjoying it as well. Do you feel the same way about Christ? Is it is the enthusiasm welling up inside of you that you, you can't contain it? And you're like, I have to share this with other people. If it's not, I ask myself this question, am I seeing him clearly? Have I understood the story? Because when other people in history have seen this story, radical things happened and they couldn't keep it to themselves. And so that's the thought I want to leave with you guys is am I seeing his story clearly? But if you take one thing from this and nothing else, it's that one statement. We exist to communicate the most compelling picture of God the world has ever seen. That's why we exist as a church. And when people see that clearly, hearts are changed, hearts are melted. It's by beholding his love that we become changed. And so if you take nothing else from this, write down that one statement. We exist, you and I exist, to communicate both in actions and in words the most beautiful and compelling picture of a loving God that anyone in the world has ever heard of. That's it. I think I'm going to wrap up with prayer and then we're going to have a discussion. Is that... Yeah? All right. Let's bow our heads. Father God, I just want to thank you for being present with us and despite me making a mess and spilling water everywhere, Lord, you've still been able to, to reach our hearts and Lord, I just want to thank you for the privilege of, uh, of knowing you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for, for Christ, for revealing who you truly are, uh, expelling the, the lies that were cast against your name, Lord. And I just pray that each one of us here can grasp that truth with, with greater clarity, Lord. If we're believing any lies, Lord, search our hearts. Lead us in the way everlasting. Uh, establish us and... and Allow us to love like you love, Lord. Knowing that if, if we can love as you've called us to love, healing and wholeness will be the result of that. So I just pray for the community here, Lord. I pray for each individual that you would just continue to draw them closer, continue to clarify the picture of who you are in their minds. And I ask that you pour out the Holy Spirit, Lord that we could be just empowered to love with that non-condemning love. And I pray that we will see the fruits of that here. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.